0: I'm making well over double what I was making at the theater now with just the rental income and the eBay income and not even some of the other little side income streams that I am bringing in. So
1: welcome to the five show where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial
2: independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Financial Independence Show, where today we have on Tom Brickman, who's going to talk about how he used real estate and side hustling to leave his job at a movie theater and how he's actually doubled his income since he left. But before that, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man?
1: Hey, Cody. Yeah, I mean, just coming off of two trips back-to-back where we're in Mexico and Christmas, and so this weekend... We flew back to Mississippi, which I was pumped that we were able to get back because it was a Southwest flight. And I honestly wasn't thinking too much about it. I mean, you see scary headlines all the time. And then that morning before we were going to leave, I looked at our flight route and realized that our flight from Memphis back to Dallas, which was, you know, part of our connection, had been canceled four days in a row leading up to that last day. So we were really <laughs> uncertain that we were going to make it. We were following the flight from its origin, like where it was going to Dallas, to Charlotte, to Dallas. You know, like we were following it around the country just to make sure it was moving on time. So we knew we wouldn't get stranded and um, ended up making it back. And then a lot of this weekend is kind of because now we're actually between coming back and another trip. We're going to Utah this weekend for some skiing. So it's kind of like getting the house back in order, unpacking. And then I also got some goodies for Christmas. I bought myself a laser engraver slash cutter. And then my mom got me a 3D printer. And so I got all that stuff put together and actually started already pumping out some projects, which I'm pretty excited about. I mean, I know I told you, like, I could see a world where, you know, I could really utilize your Etsy course. To learn some things and to start making some custom stuff and and selling it there Um, both like actual physical products and then as well as like the actual print files which i know we had nico on the show one time with his 3d printer so you can also make money just selling the digital files which is pretty cool then of course we rang in the new year Um, just went over to a friend's house kind of had a cookout style thing pretty low key We've realized we don't really love going like downtown to the bars and stuff on New Year's. It's just a madhouse. It's like, it's kind of like trying to go out to eat on Valentine's Day. It's the worst <laughs> idea to me. Never do that. So we kept it chill. And then the last thing we did was kind of interesting. Um, I went and test drove a Tesla. So those who've been like maybe listening to the show for a while may know like I bought a new F 150 about a year ago and I got a really good deal on it. So I was getting trade in offers for. Almost exactly what I paid for it, which is pretty awesome when you're buying like a new vehicle. But then Tesla used prices, which were crazy a few months ago, like people were getting what they paid for it, have dropped in dramatically, I think, because a lot of them were turned in for new ones because or to buy something else. Because the trading value was so insane, people were like, well, might as well offload it now. So I think there's like a big increase in inventory as well as people getting a little worried about a recession. So not as many people buying. Anyways, it it shoved the prices down. I'm looking at it and I could get like a Tesla Model 3 long range for just trading in my truck plus maybe adding in like five grand for one that's got like a 2021 with almost no miles on it. And so it's kind of crossed my mind to think about trading the truck out for a Tesla and then trading my car out for... An older, like more beat up truck, something I could just throw stuff in the back of and not worry about. So anyways, that's kind of my latest thing. Uh, Leslie's always joking. She just cannot keep up with where my head's at because it's like <laughs> I just wake up one day and I'm like, yep, I'm trading the truck in for Tesla. Never even talked about it before. Never even. It's just like I ran some numbers, came across some things. and was like, this makes sense. So stay tuned. Who knows? I'm with Leslie on this one. Your
2: head is seeming to go in a, di- a million different directions as of late, you've been sending me all these super cool 3D printed stuff and the laser engraving, and now you just randomly text me like, "Yeah, sorry, I, I was a bit busy." Like we had to push the this intro out a little bit because you're like, "Yeah, I was thinking about trading my car in for a Tesla." Took it for a drive it was kind of crazy. So seems like it got a lot going on, but it's better than nothing going on. So
1: oh, and also um, while I was in Corinth, I did do some uh, a walk through some properties, some real estate properties. So also still trying to find a rental property. Probably going to try to find one back home in Corinth, but went through. Actually, three different properties did some bids on uh, foreclosure. Never met the reserve. Like, anyways, got some leads, but making real progress. Those were like the first houses I've actually like set up meetings with a realtor, walk through, like put bids on. So starting to make moves this year.
2: Cool. Well, this is definitely going to be interesting when we record our 2023 goals episode and see how real estate and other things fit into that picture. It sounds like you got a lot of things you're juggling right now. But for me, so last episode, Justin, I know you had mentioned you had quit drinking pretty much all together since April, I think you said, at least drinking in any large quantity that you're going to like feel messed up the next day. So I'm going to do a little test run because I've definitely been indulging a little bit too much on the weekends, especially around the holidays and New Year's Eve. So going to do dry January and then kind of see where that takes me and see if I can have a drier February and March and April and <laughs> going forward. Because I think we talked about this before in Mexico. It's just like, it's fun when you're drinking and hanging out with people up to a point but then once you kind of get over a point and you feel horrible the next day, it's just not worth it. So trying to find that happy medium because like, like I said, around the holidays and stuff it's just hard. Everyone's drinking and it's you're just in a drinking environment people don't have work. It's just like ah oh, so I'm gonna try I'm trying out dry January that's my new thing.
1: Well, good luck, man. And I know, you know, me and Leslie have been kind of on that same journey. And I will say it's almost like the fire movement type stuff. Like you meet people and the first thing you're doing is you realize like, oh my goodness, like I've put the seed in people's head. to like, stop working. And it can kind of happen with the drinking thing too. Like you'll start talking to people. Like once you get comfortable talking about the fact that you're not doing it anymore, more people start to get curious about it. And we've noticed more friends around us actually um, starting to drink a lot less.
2: Alrighty, Justin, well, drinking and personal lives and all that fun stuff aside, let's talk about our awesome guest for today. I think you guys are going to get a ton of value out of this episode with Tom Brickman, aka the frugal gay on all social medias. This guy starts investing in real estate while he's working at a movie theater while he's doing all this like eBay side hustle stuff on the side. And in this episode, he really breaks it down like how he was going about finding these properties, how he was managing these side hustles on the side, and how it slowly started to overturn the money that he was making with his day job. And he said, he honestly probably stayed way too long at that movie theater in that position he was in. He was making double the income from his side hustles when he ended up pulling the trigger. And so whether you're someone who just wants to learn like a digital online side hustle and how you can kind of make that work with a day job, or you're someone who wants to invest in real estate in multiple different markets, because Tom even mentions how he kind of has two different strategies, one cash flow strategy, one appreciation strategy. There is a ton in here for you in this episode.
1: And the thing, I, one of the things I definitely love about Tom and his story is just like the just going for it thing. I mean, these are some of these properties could be scary to folks like they're not like these really high end properties. Some of them are not in the most like, you know, the areas that you would always think of, like that you might want to invest in. And I know for me, when I look at the story, that's what jumps out to me is like he's just going for like he didn't have this crazy salary to lean back on. He didn't have a ton of experience. He didn't have like a, a real coach or mentor. He just saw an opportunity and he took it, and then he had some setbacks early on. But he knew that it was a workable process, and he just kept going and he kept building that portfolio. And next thing you know, like you said, he's making so much more from those side hustles and real estate than he was as even his day job. And it's just a story that's also like completely redoable. Like this is not a story where somebody has some crazy luck or they've got some inheritance or they've got some skill set that's really hard to replicate like this is a story that people can listen to and follow along with and recreate and i know sometimes you know we have guests on that can feel like oh my goodness this is a really cool story but there's no way i could ever do this and we hope this is one you can definitely resonate with so whether you want to just go and like read the recap of the show, find links to Tom's social media accounts, or you want to take this episode and share it with a friend. You can do both of those things at com slash Tom. That's com slash T-O-M. Take it away, Tom.
0: I remember being told early on that if I wanted, I have to work for it. So I got creative and I started side hustling back and first and second grade and would go help neighbors take out trash and go mow lawns and whatever I could do to generate income because
1: I knew if I wanted it, I had to work for it. So you're doing like the normal kind of chores. I think that a lot of kids kind of pick up. But as you start to progress in high school, does anything else pop up? Is there anything that turns into like a bigger side hustle that maybe makes you start thinking about entrepreneurship on a whole different level, like a sustainable career kind of level?
0: So, high school, I dove in headfirst, and I had two jobs in high school. I stayed busy. I worked at a deli and I worked at The Gap. The Gap was really my foundation. It kind of helped me get that first down payment for the first property. And then my entrepreneur really kicked in in college when I didn't have enough to pay for it. So, I started my ebay business which i'm sitting right now in my ebay room intentionally and i always do this when i do calls and podcasts i bought a shopping cart full of diesel purses that were a dollar fifty i remember asking the cashier i'm like are these really only a dollar fifty and i just pushed the whole cart up to a register and bottom. and ebay didn't even have buy it now at the time there were two colors in there and i would sell them every week one of each color because I didn't want to compete with myself. And I'd sell them for $60, $70 a piece. And that was the beginnings of what I do and how I started. And I mean, I sold enough purses to pay for a semester of college and some books. So it was a very successful shopping trip that day. (laughs) That was the wheel rolling right there. So before
2: that, it sounds like you said the gap was like part of the funding for your first down payment in high school, For a property. So what kind of education were you getting at that point? Because I know me in high school, I was not thinking about putting down payments on rental properties.
0: So I worked at the Gap because I couldn't afford the cool clothes and I didn't want the kids to make fun of me. And you got 50% off by working there. But I actually signed up for the Gap stock purchase plan as well. I always just thought that I was working like a ton of hours and making no money because as soon as I'd get that $83 check, I'd go buy clothes with it. But it was actually purchasing Gap stock as well. And I cashed in that Gap stock at 21. Again, this was not my plan at 16 when I did it, but I cashed in that Gap stock. I had about $10,000 in at the time. I had a $9,000 down payment on my first $90,000 property. I didn't know what it was then. And Gap also did tuition reimbursement. So I stuck with them full-time through college. And I just had to cover the books and like the one or two classes that weren't covered by Gap. So it was a all-around great first job that really started because I wanted nicer clothes. And I didn't want the kids to make fun of me. But I went to college debt-free and bought a duplex and house hacked with it so it was a really good foundation right there
1: yeah that sounds like a pretty awesome little hack that you fell into and when you ended up cashing that out doing the down payment on the first house for most people that takes a lot of guts especially in your early 20s to get into buying something like a property although maybe you only had to come up with that down payment a ninety thousand dollar bill that you're signing up for is still like a daunting ask for someone who's you know in their early 20s so what gave you the confidence or what pushed you to do something like that I was so ridiculously
0: clueless, like the movie Clueless. Like, I didn't even know what I was signing. So, I bought this first one at 21 and it went so well. And I struggled a little bit because that was all the money I had. I was a very broke college student when I bought it. And then I'm like, well, this went well. I'm going to buy another property over in Cleveland. So, at 22, I went and signed up for another property in Cleveland. And that was a disaster. So, it wasn't that I had a ton of confidence, it was I was clueless and I didn't even know what I was doing. And then when I bought, the next property in Dallas in 2009. It was like night and day because the financial crisis happened. And I'm like, the last two properties I bought, I signed a couple of papers. They handed me the keys. I mean, I remember the second one. I was like doing the application on closing day. They were filling out the application as we were sitting there. And to go from that and then go to 2009 and I had like an underwriter scrutinizing like why I spent so much at the 99 cent store, I was terrified at what was going on. It probably slowed me down a lot because I was so cocky with number one and number two. And I held number two that I lost money on every year that I owned it for 10 years. And then finally in 2015, I bought it in 2005, sold it in 2015. I had to write a check for the difference because it had fallen in value so much in 2008 and 2009. I was like relieved because I didn't have to lose any more money on it. I didn't make that mistake again. So whenever someone DMs me and they're like, do you want to go to Cleveland? I'm like, I want nothing to do with Cleveland. I don't care if it's the best deal ever. I am not going back because I've been there and I've done it and I'm not doing it again. So what was happening in the interim, just to, for the timeline's sake? You buy that first property. It
2: sounds like 2004. The disaster in Cleveland is 2005. You don't buy your next property until four years after the disaster house in 2009. What were you doing in your day job? Like, What did it look like on, I guess, in terms of side hustles? It sounds like you have this eBay thing rolling, but real estate was on a pause. Just kind of curious if we can paint the full picture there.
0: eBay was always my background and my safety blanket. That's what I call it at this point. I can list or do as much or as little as I want. But in 2006, I took a job with a company in Texas at a movie theater and I left the gap and they're like, you go to Texas for six months, we'll move you back. And that never happened. And I've been in Texas since because rents were high. I'm like, I can't believe that people are paying $675 and that's what it was back then. And I'm like, I want to buy a house here and I want to house hack. And again, I didn't even know it was called house hacking. I just knew that if I got a roommate in the second bedroom, that could cover half of my mortgage. And I had done that already the first two times. And they're like, you have $17,000 in credit card debt. We're not going to give you anything until you get your ducks in a row. So I didn't have a ton of resources. I worked a lot at the job that I took. So I just started working at Ross, Dress for Less. And I would go over there a couple days a week. And as soon as I would get that check, there was a Citibank across the street. I would go and hand them my full check to pay off my credit card debt every two weeks. And it took almost a year. And I know that's by today's terms, people are paying off 17,000 crazy quick, but that's what it took. So in 2008, I was actually just cleaning up the credit so I could buy that fourth door.
1: And like you said, some people's stories are, are different where they're paying off like huge amounts of debt, like really fast, whatever, but everybody's in a different situation. So to kind of give yours a little bit of a, I guess, a scale, like what were you making? What was your income that year?
0: So I know I started at the theater at 32000 and I don't know what they paid me at Ross, probably $7 an hour, $8 an hour, somewhere in that vicinity. I did have like a little side hustle where I would go out to the flea market, and I would talk to vendors, and I would find out what they need, and then I would go shop through the flea market and find the items that they were looking for, bring them over to them, sell them for a slightly higher price. And then that was a little hustle that I would do back then. But that was besides Ross and the rentals and the one in Cleveland was just draining me every month. That was where I was at with the money wise. In terms of
2: income breakdown. So at this point, you have four doors. You're doing this eBay thing. It sounds like you can turn it up and turn it down based on how much volume you want to do and how many items you pick up, et cetera, et cetera. What percentage of your income was coming from like the movie theater and the Ross versus these side hustles, like the real
0: estate and the eBay stuff? That was probably 80%. And then if I did the flea market thing or I did some great sales on eBay, that would supplement whatever I was falling short because I had dug myself into a credit card hole in college after I bought those first two properties. Like I'll never forget when I had that one in Cleveland and the hot water heater went out, I'm like, I don't have $900 to fix this. And you can't tell that to a tenant. And I bought junk too. Like everyone wanted a DVD player back then and all that kind of stuff. So I charged up my cards. Yeah, I would say 10 to 20% were side hustle. And then the other 80 were
1: Ross or the movie theater. And so, you know, throughout this story, you've talked about a couple of times where, you know, you're buying things maybe you don't necessarily need, like racking up some credit card debt, but you're also making some really wise financial decisions with the house hacking and buying the gap stock. At what point do you start to kind of hone in on that personal finance part and really start to scrutinize what that spending looks like?
0: It was the 2009 debacle with the underwriter because I'm like, I don't want to go through this again. And I have really honed in after that, once it closed, and this was a $26,000 condo, I'm like, I'm not going to do that to myself again. So I'm at that 2009 mark, I made it a goal, and I did it every single year, and there were years that I would buy two or three. I'm just like, I'm going to buy a property a year, and a lot of them I bought in cash, and I would side hustle enough, like my 2010 property was a $14,500 condo, and I side hustled to buy it in cash and i had very little left over so people that i met at the theater i'm like can you come over and help me with tile this weekend can you come do this and i just leaned on who i had here and i made that first door i guess at that point it was door number five and it worked and you know i bought this thing cash so i was cash flow positive i don't remember 150 200 at the time because i think rent on it was like 400 dollars And that's how it got rolling. And that door number five in 2010 was when I'm like, I'm actually going to make money this year because the first four, I did house hack. So I didn't make money, but I was living rent free. But number five was the turning point for me. And I try and tell a lot of people that, that I really didn't make a lot of money up until door number five. And even door number five, it wasn't like I was rolling in dough. It was actually generating income, which is what I had been working on that whole time. And that's
2: six years after that initial investment. So I'm curious if you were at this point operating in a silo, like were you just, Tom, and I'm going to try this and try that, see what works, see what doesn't. Or was there any kind of online community where you saw other people doing the types of things you were doing? Because I know Justin and I just talked about this recently, like we didn't even understand that financial independence was possible until we saw other people lay the roadmap out for us. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis in my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth. One dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug-and-play tools you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase, That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show.
0: I would say that came in like 2012. Okay. So I wasn't even like 100% working towards it. But I remember I signed up for a newsletter and I followed this couple as they travel around the world. And that's when I'm like, I think I can do this. And I still am subscribed to their newsletter. And they started following me on twitter and i got all excited and i messaged them and they had such a negative mean response back to me that after following them for 10 years they're like you left your job at the worst time and blah blah and i was like why did i follow these people for 10 years and i won't obviously say names but i was disappointed with that but i've had a ton in this community that have been super supportive and and always willing to bounce ideas off of each other and you know, this works, this doesn't work. So that's the great part of it. So I did have that one negative And that was the one that kind of got me going. And that incident just happened like a year ago. And after they followed me, I'm like, I'm going to message them because I followed them for over 10 years now. It just wasn't what I expected.
1: <laughs> well, I'm sure a lot of people are hearing some of these numbers you are throwing out like a $14,000 condo and are thinking, what in the world? Is this a broom closet in, you know, Arkansas? Like, what, what is this? Like, what is a $14,000 condo? So it was a five hundred and twenty square foot third
0: floor condo in Dallas. The investors absolutely ignored the condos because there's lots of restrictions there's h o a dues. It was a five hundred and twenty square foot condo. I think I had maybe four thousand or six thousand dollars at the time, and I poured every ounce into it. They were asking eighteen thousand we had bid fourteen thousand five hundred. They said, "No, will you do sixteen five And I'm like, "I just don't have that much money, which was true and like a week later, I mean, this is how slow the market had gotten, they came back and they're like, will you still do 14.5? And I'm like, yep. And that's how that one went down. But it was nice. It was lofted ceilings. And then I had worked out some other, like I got them to replace the air conditioning right before I bought it because it was a problem on the inspection. So I got a great deal. And then they had to spend money on fixing it to get it out of their hair. And I held that one all the way. I just sold that property in 2020. And I sold it for 89000 now. And I turned that into two multifamilies is what that 89000 got rolled into.
2: Wow. And I know to echo Justin's point and to piggyback off his question, I have gotten a lot of pushback. Like any type of real estate content I've created, there's always the one person from like California or Hawaii, they're like a duplex under $300,000. is that? Like in the middle of nowhere? And it's like, no, it's in basically every single state in the whole country. But I'm hoping and I've seen you create some content around this, could you just name a couple of markets? I know you you personally invest in a few markets where you can find duplexes for let's say even under $100,000. I know there's still markets all around the country, but just for listeners out there so they can go and if if they still think this is BS up to this point, they can go and Google or Zillow themselves, what are a few markets that you'd recommend people check out if they're looking for that really low cost $100,000 or less duplexes?
0: So I think that this is really important. I do invest in Toledo, Ohio, and I do invest in Dallas, Texas. And Dallas, Texas is almost all appreciation and I make almost nothing. And then Toledo, Ohio is like zero appreciation, but I cash flow on those properties. So that's the two types of markets that I'm in and I'm in both intentionally. So if something goes bad in one, I'm covered in the other and vice versa. And Toledo, Ohio is one, but I've brought a lot of investors with me and I've seen it start to tighten. And I call it a mispriced market because you can get a great solid $75,000 to $125,000 duplex that cash flows that you're collecting $1,400, 1600 in rent a month. Youngstown, Ohio, there are pockets in Indiana that have lots of opportunities. I was looking with a client recently and we were looking in Oklahoma. So there are lots of opportunities I stick with where I'm comfortable. So when I get a DM and they're like, come to Kentucky, I don't know the Kentucky laws. I don't know all the ins and outs. So I've stuck with these two states that I've been in and I've had professional leases done and I know what the laws are here and how to run my business here. And like you just said, there are tons of opportunities if you go into Illinois, if you go into upstate New York, if you go, you know, for these multifamily, $100,000 range properties that you can make money on. It's just important. Like right now, if I tried to buy a duplex in Dallas, it's going to be in the four dollars to $500,000 range. You're obviously not going to cash flow on that with what your rents are. But when I go towards Toledo or Youngstown or any of those, I am not going for that appreciation that I get in Dallas. I'm going for the actual cash flow.
1: Well, you mentioned like, hey, these are the two spots that I know. But from the story I've heard, I don't think you ever lived in Toledo. I did, actually. Oh, sorry.
0: Yeah, the first one was a house hack. I lived upstairs in the ugly unit and rented out the downstairs. And I did it because... I didn't want to pay a high rent and my mortgage was $738 and the downstairs tenant paid 600 So I'm like, I can live here for 138 bucks. That's how I ended up back in Texas. So that was how that one started.
1: Well, I guess to say it in a different way, like, is there any markets that you've looked at that you actually would consider getting in that you've never lived in? I guess for people who don't live or have never lived in a market that's small like that, what's the things that they can do in order to get comfortable finding one of those like lower point of entry areas? Understanding the market is key
0: and understanding what you're getting because it's really attractive to look at that $15,000 house in Oklahoma. But when you start diving in or same with Arkansas or any of those, so understanding what you're getting and what the landlord laws are. I mean, you could jump on bigger pockets and look at other investors that are investing in Arkansas and Oklahoma and just get a little bit of guidance without having to spend a whole bunch of money. And I try and encourage people like when i talk to people and they want to invest in toledo i'm like just do one visit you don't have to come back you don't even have to look at the house that we're going to buy do a visit so you understand what you're getting because i can't stand when i get a dm and this happened recently where they're like i bought this fourplex and i'm losing money on it every month and as soon as he gave me the zip code i'm like dude you bought in the worst neighborhood in toledo and number one nobody wants to live there number two nobody wants to go over there and do work because their car is going to be stolen while they're doing the work you bought doors to buy doors you didn't buy doors to produce income so i'm at that point where i'm trying to buy nothing that i wouldn't live in obviously i don't want to live in all 21 of mine and there was a time i bought a crack house at one point and i would not live in it and it's no longer my house anymore that's key too because you can see these inexpensive properties and low points of entry And you're like, oh, man, I want to collect rent on this. I can get 700 bucks. But if it's that rough house that nobody wants to live in anyway, then you've just wasted that low point of entry money and you're going to be in the same spot where you're not really producing any more income.
2: And other than actually visiting and getting to that zip code and realizing this is the dumpiest neighborhood I've ever been in. I don't feel safe walking around. Are there any other metrics or types of things you can look up from afar, like whether or not there's a Starbucks in the area or like things like that, that can give you a good proxy as to whether this market's worthwhile?
0: I can't do the Starbucks and I'll tell you why. Oak Cliff is one of the hottest neighborhoods in Dallas and it has like no Starbucks, but it's just blown up over the last 10 years. And if I ignored it because of the proximity to Starbucks, I wouldn't have made the money that I made. So I can't do the Starbucks. But I can say there is a very rough zip code in Toledo and the city's spending money there and they're redoing parks and that. So I pay, I don't know, $40 a year for a digital subscription to the newspaper because I want to invest in that market. So I'm up on, okay, the city's spending money over here. Other metrics that I use, rentometer. Like I got a DM recently from someone and they're like, my tenants want to move out because they said that I'm charging too much in rent. And as soon as he gave me the address, I'm like, dude, you're charging like 400 more than what you should be charging. I would want to move out as well. And he's like, well, what would you do? Should I just sell it? It's that panic of an inexperienced investor who got lucky and got them to sign a lease. And two months in, they're like, wait a minute, why are my neighbors charging 1600 and you're charging me 2100? So I think the more you know, the better. And again, when I bought a commercial building, I could not figure out a way to get financing on it. And I went into the community on bigger pockets and I found other investors in my area. And they're like, I did this. And I'm like, oh, I have a paid off property. Let me try that. And sure enough, I was able to pull money on another existing property to buy the commercial space without actually putting a loan on it, was able to fix the property with the rest of the money. And then I was able to go back to the bank once all four units were rented, and they're like you own this property free and clear. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and got a loan on it super easy. And I was talking about this today. Building a team is so important. And you can start building a team before you even need it. And if you guys are okay, I'm going to tell this story because this just happened today. I bought a house in August. I bought it in the neighborhood that the city is doing a lot of work on. I have been running in circles trying to get an electrician to go out. I needed to have an electrician go out and certify it and do some work before they would turn on electric. So I've had no electricity for a couple months now. And finally, I got someone to respond to me, but they had no reviews. And they gave me a $7,000 estimate. And I'm like, when you're doing a $15,000 renovation, and you get a 7,000 estimate, you're like, so I had a neighbor of another duplex years ago that I was always friendly with always sent him a Christmas card. And like, as a stretch last week, I just texted him and he had moved away. And I'm like, are you still doing electric? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, can you look at this for me? And he's like, of course. And he got over there. He did the repair today. He's like, send me 600 bucks. It was 500 for that and 100 for gas. And I sent him 800 because I'm like, that's ridiculous that you're only charging me 700. And my other estimate was 7,000. And that was just like a contact that I made when I bought that duplex. I gave him my card. I would send him a Christmas card once a year. And I'm like, hey, I live out of state. If you see anything going on here, just shoot me a text. And even though I hadn't spoken to him in many years, it was one of those that really worked itself out because I think I was at that point where I didn't want the project to continue to sit and I'm just going to pay someone $7,000 to do it. But because I had built a team and he's not necessarily even on my team, he was just a contact that I met next to a property that I bought. It worked itself out. And I think that that's one thing that people struggle on as well. If you find a great deal and you don't have anyone to do the work, It's not really a great deal because it's going to just sit there and continue to cost you money. And that's what was happening with this house with me.
1: Yeah, I think me and Cody are like just such huge proponents of networking in general, whether it's like, you know, most of the time when you get a new job, it's because you knew someone at that company. In this situation, like just the fact that that person knew who you were, even though you're not close, you're not keeping a ton of contact, made all the difference in the world. And speaking of like the team that you built with these houses and as you acquire so many doors, are you still trying to do any property management yourself or are you factoring that in? I self-manage
0: the seven in Dallas, and then I have two property managers on the 14 doors in Ohio. And one of them is in-house intentionally, where they work for me, and I have to delegate projects to them. And one of them is a third property manager on a couple doors. And I do the two for a couple of reasons. I can kind of keep the other one in check. So if one starts to not work out, I can switch gears. And that's worked well for me because it also kind of keeps both of them on their toes because they don't really want to lose the contracts.
2: Going back to how other people can maybe replicate some of your success. I know we talked about the Starbucks metric isn't a great one for you and you wouldn't have made as much money if you used that. Are there any other maybe numerical metrics that you look for? Like I know a lot of the really popular ones are like the 1% rule. It sounds like you're way over that especially with all your Ohio properties or are there just any other sneaky fees or like things that, you know, a $70,000 property like Maybe you would have that
0: a uh, 400000 property wouldn't. I mean, it's case by case. And I'll just tell you this story. I have a $440,000 house here in Dallas, and it generates the same income as my $26,000 house in Toledo. The same amount of money every year is made from opposite sides of the spectrum. So when I look at these, obviously, right now, if I tried to buy that house at 440000 I wouldn't. It just wouldn't cash flow, but I bought it as a hoarder house and I fixed it and I was 220 into it versus 440, which it is today. So I look at every deal as a case by case. And then I look at the county gives a grade to a neighborhood. And just yesterday I had a client texting me and she's like, I want to look at this house. It's a B minus. And I'm like, "Mm, that doesn't sound right. And as soon as I went to the county website, I'm like, no, it's a D plus. We don't want to start here. So that's a metric that I typically use our neighborhood grades. I would never encourage a first-time investor to go towards that D-plus property. That $26,000 house that I have is a D-plus house, but it had a Chrysler chip plant down the road. So when I put it up for rent, I had like tons of applications. And it was just one of those that everything worked out on it. And I have a really good tenant because I had tons of applications. And for a first-time investor, even though I had good luck there, I wouldn't tell you to go in there. So I try and take into not just the numbers, not just the 1% rule, but what's the city doing over there? Is there growth? And that's it. You know, Toledo has had a small decline consistently f- since the 1970s. But because of that, investors have stayed away. And that's why I call it a misrepresented
1: market. Well, s- speaking of the tenants, like you found that great tenant, I think that's the name of the game, especially when you start to scale it, And if you're going to be managing some of them yourself is, having good tenants that don't cause you headaches and also you don't have a ton of vacancy. So what is it that you're doing to kind of qualify tenants and do what you can to get the best person possible in there? Typically, and I found
0: this out on that $14,000 property, when you make it nice and a little bit nicer than everyone else around, you can be a little bit more selective. And I've always tried to make my properties nice and stand out. And back then it was like I would put a Bluetooth speaker bulb up in the ceiling and they could, do their Bluetooth from a speaker bulb. And that was the coolest thing 12 years ago. And I could get a little, you know, 20 extra dollars a month in rent because I have these Bluetooth speaker bulbs. So what am I doing differentiating myself with a little bit nicer amenities always, even in the $26,000 house, we did spend a little bit extra money to make sure that it showed well, it looked nice, and somebody wants to live there. And that's where I bought a property in May from, I would call them a slumlord. And I could not believe that he had a tenant living in it two months prior to me buying it because it was just one of those that was so ran into the ground and no maintenance and falling apart that I'm like, I can't believe somebody lived in this and paid you $700. And I was just sitting at that closing table as I was signing the paperwork. And I'm like, I wouldn't tell anyone that you let that house be yours. And the more I get into this, the more I see there's a lot of times where A lot of the houses I'm buying, like that house that I was just telling you about where I had to get electric work, are properties that have sat on the market for months and months and months. They're neglected. This was a bank-owned one that I bought back in August. And I'm putting them back into commission more than taking away from first-time home buyers. When I bought my primary residence where I'm sitting right now, I remember saying to my spouse, I'm like, this is the first time in my life I've bought a property that I could actually move into. And it was ugly and it needed work but it didn't need anything. It had working electric, it had toilets, it had everything. And I've done a lot of projects over the last 18 or so years. Even the $14,000 one, I mean, we were putting toilets in. We didn't have AC for a while because we had them install the AC. So I've never bought a move-in ready project. And I know I've completely stumbled off of our topic. I don't even remember what the question was, and I'm sorry. All good, man. Now, this is all good, helpful information. I think
2: just seeing the full picture and seeing how you think about acquiring properties and qualifying tenants and properties, that was the original question, was the that qualifying was... tenants thing. I do want to kind of get back to your story, though, because I know you mentioned back in 2010, you set this goal like, I'm going to buy a property per year. Did that end up panning out?
0: It did. And then there were like really challenging years where. 2013, I threw out three offers at once and all three got accepted. So I'm like, I'm going to figure this out. And I figured it out. And I was conservative back then when I was moving into this primary house that I was sitting in. I found a notebook from 2011 of properties that I was looking at and the asking price and what I was bidding on. And it was crushing for me to see some of the properties that I walked away from because they didn't accept offers. But it did work out. I did consistently buy one a year. And the crack house actually happened when I got priced out of Dallas. I'm like, you know what? I'm making money in Toledo. I'm going to go back here. These numbers are making more sense. The 1% rule is blown out of the water. And I went back there in 2018. And 2019, I picked up the commercial space and that was four
1: units. So I've consistently picked up at least a door a year. And you also like getting back to that kind of your story part, you talked about 2012 is when you started more discovering this idea of maybe like early retirement or more this community around all these different topics. So you already had this in your mind. That you're going to buy one a year. You were already doing that. You're well on your way. Did anything really change once you found this larger community?
0: So I was always working towards 10 doors. And when I got to 10 doors, I wasn't making enough where I felt comfortable. And I just kept going. So I knew that I had some unrealistic expectations numbers wise as I got exposure to the community. And I also knew that if I was going to do this I needed to do a little bit more just for my own safety. And that's part of why I put in my notice in 2019, but I ended up staying at my job two extra years just because of self-doubt. So as I got further in, and the reason I actually did put in my notice is because I found others in the community that supported and could run numbers by, and they're like, you're making way more than me, and I have all these different sources. They're like, it's time. Unless you're going to go out and blow all of this or sell all these doors you're good. And I had that speech almost a year ago. I put in my notice in December of 2021. And the first week of January was my last day at work at the movie theater. I stayed there 16 years. And that in itself, when I finished at the movie theater, I was making just over 70000 And with bonus, I was right under 80000 So I never had a great salary the whole time That I was here, but I always continued to grow my business via eBay, via however I could figure it out. I figured it out, and just like when 2013 came, I took out a personal loan to pay for that. When I bought the hoarder house, I did a personal loan, and I just knew how much that hoarder house or how much these different properties could generate, and that was always my focus. So I kept the older car that I ran into the ground, and I bought an income-producing asset instead of buying a new car, and that was not the norm. And being exposed to that community is what made me say, okay, it's not the norm, but there's others that are driving this 14 year old car that's beat up and they're buying real estate and they're producing income a lot of different ways that I didn't even think were possible.
2: And so I know earlier in the conversation I asked you, I was asking about when you get that fifth door, that fourth door, you had about an 80, 20 or maybe 90, 10 split day job versus side hustles. When you finally quit your job, what did the split look like?
0: Like, what am I producing from my doors versus my eBay business?
2: Let's just call it the AMC theater job, like
0: side hustles versus main job. I'm making well over double what I was making at the theater now with just the rental income and the eBay income and not even some of the other little side income streams that I am bringing in. So well over double now. And that probably was boosted by my self-doubt because I just kept going and going and going. And those doors were like, I couldn't get them quick enough because I wanted to get to that comfort level. And it made no sense that I kept going, but I just did it out of self-doubt.
1: Well, that's an incredible number to get to. I mean, that's a, you know, if you're talking about double the 70s, if you're talking in that like 150, 160 kind of range for the doors plus the eBay, like those kind of side hustle businesses, I mean, that, that's incredible. And I guess my question is, is that enough? Like, do you still need one a year?
0: The reason I'm still buying, I'm doing a few select case-by-case partnerships and I'm open to that. We just got a great property under contract and the owner is financing us with really good terms and really good interest rates. So it made sense. And when I met my spouse, I told him, we need to build your doors now. So he actually has one rental and At this point, as like we looked this past weekend here in Dallas, and we're looking for him as well. So we want to get him to hit that number. He still works a traditional job, but he wants to hit the same number that I hit and be able to tap out by the same age as myself. He's a little bit younger, so he's got some more years to work on that.
2: I know way earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you were actually purchasing a lot of these properties in cash. So I'm curious from the expense side of things, if you're making I think back when you first started, you said you were making $32,000 from the movie theater and then maybe like an extra five grand or something from the real estate and the side hustles. That doesn't sound like you're making enough to buy a property for cash every single year, unless you're literally spending zero. So like, I guess, what did that look like throughout your journey? Like, what was your savings
0: rate percentage? So I was saving everything I could. And I was also doing alternate things at the theater where they'd pay me to go set up a theater in another state. And then they'd give you a per diem. So I would like eat the 49 cent noodles and keep that per diem and roll it into it. So any way that I could generate income, I would always take mileage gigs, always travel and continue to do eBay. My savings rate at that time, it was over 50. I know that. I don't have a a number for you. So I was starting to make money. So anything that was made from those properties that wasn't getting reinvested into those properties was getting reinvested into the new properties. And a lot of my doors early, like I had a $9,000 door in there. I had a wow. <laughs> I bought one on the courthouse steps for 9000 I bought a $12,000 one. And I was one of those also where I'd keep $1,000 in my emergency fund and I'd spend the rest, which I don't do that anymore. But anything that I could put into real estate because I didn't want to continue with that job, I did.
1: And I think if, you know, maybe if there's ever like a pushback on the financial independence type community, sometimes it's that it's the going so hard. It's the eating the 49 cent noodles. When you look back on it, do you have any regrets at the speed in which you pushed for this? Do you wish you would have slowed down and enjoy life a little more?
0: I wish I would have sped up. Actually, I wish I would have went a little bit harder because I see these deals that I passed on and I know I could have hit it in 2016 or 2018. And so no. And When I was traveling for work, I went all over the country, so I wasn't skimping out on no vacations. I was actively traveling, and even if I wasn't traveling there, I'd do a mini vacation. Dallas is a great hub to kind of get you anywhere you want to go, and it's usually you can find that inexpensive ticket. So I didn't skimp on that. I didn't skimp on gifts. Whenever I have something that I couldn't sell, it ended up as a gift for a family member or something. They know that drill very well from my eBay sales. I have to sell it, like tell them this is a great product and this is why. But I don't regret the pace that I went. I wish I would have went a little bit harder. And I think that I held myself back because of that experience with that underwriter. And I was just doing the cash properties because I know I passed on great $90,000 houses or duplexes back then because I didn't have that cash. So that would be my only regret.
2: But now at this point, you're helping other people hopefully do that journey even faster than you did. So I guess at what point did your brand, The Frugal Gay, come to fruition and you started documenting the whole process and kind of showing other people what you were doing?
0: So that started in 2014 and 2015 and got abandoned several times over the years. And when I knew that 2021 was going to be my last year working at the movie theater, I kind of kicked it into gear, started interacting with lots in the community started connecting. I made it a goal in 2021 to go to FinCon. I connected with a ton of people there. All the podcasts and press that I did in 22 was from people I met at FinCon in 2021. So it blossomed over the years. It just had a couple of false starts. And then it's really started rolling in the beginning of 2021.
1: Awesome. And I know you talked about, although it was limited, maybe like some partnerships, what does that kind of look like? How are you? finding people or qualifying people if they want to get into business with you.
0: It's a case by case. And I am in that really sweet spot where if I don't want to do it, I'm not taking it on. And I'm very flexible with terms. I went to a very large real estate account and I said, people are hounding me and they want to give me money and I don't want to take their money, but I don't want to just ignore them. And they're sending me their credit reports. And what do I do? And I'm like, you have 300 doors and I know you have a ton of partners. And I have two doors with partners pre this. And they're a very rough two doors. And it's because my partners are very inexperienced. This is their only rental property. And it was set up as a 50 50 split. But just like high school, one person ends up doing a lot of the work and everyone gets to take the credit. So I didn't want to do that. So I went to him. I went to him at FinCon this year. And I'm like, walk me through the structure. How do you do this? What are you doing? And he walked me through step by step. He's like, tell them you'll take equity as a partner. Tell them you'll take a management fee. Tell them you'll do this. So if it makes sense, and like right now, I'm working with a client who lost a lot of money by just buying what someone told him. When I work with clients, I always try and get them a little bit of equity when they buy their houses. So this is what I can offer you. Even if it's an MLS deal, I can find you a solid deal where you're not going to be in the hole right off the bat. And then I can help you set up your systems because I have a team. And if I have to text the guy that lived next to my duplex from 10 years ago to do the electric, I will. And that's kind of what I bring to it. So when people approach me about, oh, I want to be a partner in this state, if I can't add value there, I'm going to say this isn't a state that I've operated in. I don't know that I can do it. But when they're like, I want to invest in Texas or I want to invest in Ohio, I'm like, I know that I can do that. And again, it's a case by case deal with those types of partnerships.
2: Love that. Well, I did not realize that you had started your brand back in 2014 or 2015. You must have been just really hammering the networking and getting out there over the past like two or three years. Because I've just seen you blowing up on Twitter. I know you're doing Instagram now and you're just like creating so much content, so much helpful content. And for those who are listening who want to connect, who want to learn more, who maybe do want to do a partnership with you, where is the best place or places for them to connect and get in touch?
0: So Twitter is my main jam, but with lots of uncertainty happening. I am the same screen name at the Frugal Gay Eleven on TikTok, on Instagram, and on Twitter. And then I have a newsletter and I have a website. It's just the frugalgay.com. And I have coaching sessions up on there. I have resources up there for landlords getting started. Like if you need to find landlord insurance or kind of get you pointed in the right direction so you don't make the same mistakes that I made over the last
1: 18 years. Well, Tom, thank you so much for giving us some time. And although your story is like super incredible, the thing I love about it is it it feels like one of those that more people can actually pull off, like more people can follow along and read, you know, kind of redo and follow along with your footsteps. So I appreciate you coming on here, giving us some time and hopefully inspiring some listeners. Thank you for having me. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of the five show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share this with a friend. And also don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at the Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone until next time.